Welcome to ADHD is Over, a new podcast on a seemingly old label that we're going to be peeling off. Join my wife, Tatiana, and I as we journey with our family, the Wyden family, through the land of confusing information. We're going to visit both sides and let you decide because the power is with you. Welcome to ADHD is Over. My guest today is Kelly. Hello, Kelly. Hello, Roman and everyone listening. So excited for you to be in our show. Mm. I invited you to come share your experience um, because there's a lot of young people out there that went through something when they were very young and their parents went through it. And I just want to have a little side note that our show is never about blaming our parents or blaming our family for doing what they did. They did the best they could. So in this context, what we're sharing simply is an experience that hopefully will make a difference for someone else. So all I'm going to say is, Kelly, you're an energy healer. You're a highly sensitive being. And when you first told me that, I thought, hmm, I wonder if ever in your past you might have been labeled or what I call accused of having this so-called disorder called ADHD. So uh, maybe take us back. What do you remember? When did you first feel that you were different or highly sensitive or you had so much information available or coming at you? Mm-hmm. Thank you, Roman. Yeah, let's go back. I remember being six months old and being in my crib and having engagements with beings of light who were not physical, energetic beings. Some people call them angels. I call them angels. And that's the earliest memory that I have of having more information coming at me than what was right in front of me. And did you feel that in the moment, right? Because right now as an adult, you can sort of look back and go, oh, I, yeah, I remember. Mm -hmm. But you're remembering a moment, right? Now it's a memory. In that moment, are you, were you aware as a six months old that this is more than, or do you have a comparison that it's more than other people would receive? Or how do you, I know that's a loaded question, but... Totally. I had no awareness that no one else was experiencing this. It felt so real and so um, tangible and clear for me. And, you know, at six months old, you're not really aware of the other at that age. And so, yeah, I was felt like it was just the entirety of reality for everybody. Mm. Mm -hmm. And at what point did you feel like you know, when something or someone on the outside pointed out that made you feel like maybe not everybody sees this, maybe not everybody has this experience. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that? I do. I do. I had a very rich experience as a child and I tended to be more solo. Um, my older brother has Asperger's and so he was you know, needing a lot of care and, and affection and attention from my parents. So I became pretty self-sufficient. And I remember, you know, four or five years old, spending so much time by myself outside in the garden or hanging out with my brother, who also had a vivid experience, um, different. And when I was about six was when my parents started letting me know that, angels aren't actually real and it wasn't coming from 
don't believe in something, it was coming from be more, quote, normal. Mm. Why are you having these conversations and this super rich experience with angels and fairies? So it was about age six that that started. What's amazing to me, two things. One, I will say right now to parents listening is you might have a highly sensitive child at your hand, in your hands, in your family. And that's one thing I wanted to say. So if you're with us on the fence, you're open-minded to listen, continue listening uh, to this episode, think of your child. What if your child could see or experience more information, more energies than, than you, than us as the parents, right? So if you can keep an open mind about that would be amazing. And two, it's interesting when you said, you know, angels are not real, mm-hmm. right? Cause we, we think of real as like the neighbor, the person, the human being, the flesh and bones we see that we can shake hands with that person's real, mm-hmm. but an angel or a spirit is not real because it's not a tangible, it's not in a 3D form, right? And so I just want to point out that um, as parents often, because I'm a parent, I have two boys, I'm often challenged to, um, you know, not make the realities or the experiences of my children wrong because I'm denying their reality. And we've gotten really good at, you know, saying if that's real for you, be with it, explore it, see what's there. Right. And of course I've done a lot of work and it took me a while to get there and not every parent is ready to do that. And I'm assuming your parents for them, it was just like not tangible, Mm -hmm. right? This can't be real. Now, how do you remember how that made you feel? Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. I would like to, I will answer that question. And I would like to add first that when I speak of angels, for me, that was how I was relating the energy that I was experiencing. And as highly sensitive beings, we are simply experiencing energy beyond what is seen right in front of us. So I say angels because as my child self, that was really safe for me to feel that I had angels when I was seeing energy beyond this human third dimensional veil that yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. Thank you for that distinction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I just got uh, what you were saying is this sort of idea that that the energies are out there and they they move and right and we interact with it, but we can essentially or we will choose what's safe or what makes sense for us in that moment. Right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so, okay, so now you're there. You're six years old. Your parents said, "Sorry, honey, that's not really real. Yeah. You should be normal." Yeah. And so what happened next? <laughs> uh, well, my very first response was something along the lines of, you don't know what you're talking about. And I am pretty certain that this is about the time that my strong rebellion began to kick in. And my parents, I love them so, were maybe overwhelmed because I would not listen to what they were saying. They were telling me, you know, this isn't, this isn't real. You can't see it right here. You can't touch it. It's not real. And I was like, well, how come I know that you're not telling the truth? You know, and things like that would be happening. This like highly sensitive to the energetics of things. Like I was saying, it's all about the energy. And so I was very rebellious at first. And then I reached a point where I really wanted to be accepted 
by my parents, especially my dad. Of course. Yeah. And I wasn't feeling accepted and I wasn't feeling that support from my, my father to be who I was being. And so around age seven, maybe going on eight, I decided I was going to shut out my experience, my sensory experience. And I, you know, kind of closed the door to communicating with my angels. And I decided I was going to try to fit in with what normal was. And, um, that was an, a pivotal choice for me to learn. And also it was very, very, um, painful, painful to try to fit into the normal of what, you know, was accepted by my parents and my teachers and my, my classmates. And at what point did, uh, anyone suggest that you might have a disorder? Mm -hmm. So I remember that was suggested kind of early on, but due to my brother having Asperger's and he was having, I mean, meltdowns, like reality was very hard for him to handle as a child. I was, like I said, kind of pushed aside, not, not out of neglect, just we have this child that we have to focus on. Um, so I was actually diagnosed with ADHD around age 14, which is kind of later than the majority of kids who are being diagnosed now. Yeah. And yeah, it, it was kind of like my hyperactivity and high sensitivity just wasn't really being seen because of what was happening with my, my older brother. Makes sense. Yeah, no, I get it. Obviously, parents, uh, you know, we all have our struggles and we have our uh, sort of fires to put out. And the, the, the first fire you're trying to put out is the biggest one, right? Yeah. Um, so again, there's no blame there. There's no, you know, our parents and I include, include myself, we do the best we can at any given moment, you know, and then you grow and you grow and you go, oh my God, I could have done that better, but that's just how it is, right? Mm -hmm. Now, so at 14, when you got diagnosed, was it, because often people will say, oh good, now I know what was quote unquote wrong with me. But often those people don't see themselves as highly sensitive or that they've had this sort of communication with energy that you've had. So was it one of those for you or how did it land with you when that was, when that label was presented to you? Mm -hmm. For me, it, on a surface level, on the part of me that was trying to be normal, I was like, oh, that, th this is going to help. I can actually fit in now because now we know what's wrong with me. So I can get the medication, I can be fine and fit in. That was the surface response. And when that didn't happen, you know, I was on the medication and then I was basically numbed out and still not normal and still not fitting in. Mm. Um, and this was Ritalin at the time? Uh, I was you... put on Adderall. Adderall. Mm -hmm. Oh, because you're 14. Yeah, yeah, usually Ritalin's a little earlier, I think. Well, depends. So you're in Adderall, you're at school, you're performing a little better, maybe being a little more quiet or? Mm, so I was diagnosed as ADHD because I did not want to be at school. I didn't want to pay attention. I didn't want anything to do with the education system. And due to my la like slacking grades and attendance, um, they labeled me as having ADHD and they being the psychologists I was seeing. And that didn't really change once I got the medication. Um, I was on the medicine and, you know, like I said, it was the surface where I felt like, oh, maybe I can fit in now. 
underneath that surface was a little girl who had been hiding who she really was for many years, trying to be someone else to be accepted. And throughout that hiding, it had kind of built up that desire to just not really be anymore because if I couldn't be myself I had to be someone else to be accepted and on the deeper level of when I was labeled with ADHD I was like truthfully I was like oh great medicine maybe I can numb myself out more maybe I won't be here in this reality more maybe this will you know help me feel better because I really hate who I'm trying to be right now and was it ever thank you for that layer um, so you're feeling like you can't be yourself, right? The highly sensitive communicating with energies uh, not wanting to have anything to do with the school system and really carve out your own path, which we'll get to later in this episode. I think that's beautiful. Um, so you're there, you're, you're numbed out. And sometimes I use that term and I feel like people are going to judge me because everybody uses it like, oh, medication numbs our children. And it's not true for every child. I think at a, deeper emotional physiological level it is right but some kids will have a lot of energy and they'll be like yeah let's do stuff and woo, let's go and have good grades and you know so it could look like they're not really numbed out they're not robots they're not like asleep kind of thing but when you say numbed out you really meant that you wanted to not feel the pain of not wanting to be alive mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. did it ever occur to you that like, if I have to continue like this, I don't want to live in this world. I'd rather be out, checking a- out. Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. I attempted to end my life twice as a teenager. Um, obviously, it didn't work. I'm here today. <laughs> Thank um, God. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it... Mm. Hmm. Yeah, it didn't really... So the numbed out that I'm speaking of was... I personally was like on the ADD medicine. I was on Adderall and I was numbed out in the sense that I was so high from the Adderall. Like I was just like soaring high, like, you know, someone who's taking like a low dose of methamphetamines. Well, Adderall is a schedule two drug alongside meth and cocaine and you know, yeah, it is. So that's how I responded to it. And I was just, I would shoot through the roof with energy and it didn't, I didn't want to do, definitely didn't want to do my schoolwork then. Like I was like, there's, you know, going on that like manic upward high yeah. is where yeah. the Adderall took me. I can relate by the way, cause I took it about a month and a half ago as mm-hmm. part of the documentary testing Adderall and Ritalin. And I was super high strong and I couldn't sleep at night. I was, my brain kept going and I felt like, like an energetic jerk is how my wife described me, you know? And so the high strung totally rings a bell, you know, Mm -hmm. and were you, um, because a lot of girls with ADHD are more introvert and more quiet. Mm -hmm. They're not, boys are out and about and hyperactive and type A. Were you before medication, were you pretty, pretty sort of quiet and kept to yourself? Yeah, I've always been really social. I've always had the ability to connect with a lot of different people. I was, you know, in middle school and high school, I was friends with all the groups of people. I would just bounce around Mm. from everyone. And I still, even in that state, I was still pretty introverted before the medicine. I, I spent more time alone. I slept better. I, you know, rested a lot more. And then when I was placed on the Adderall, it was like, honestly like a party girl just came out of me and I just 
turned into like, let's have, you know, so much fun and not not go to school, not go to school and not experience, you know, any pain that's at home. Let's just Mm. avoid Mm. it all. What pain, if I may ask, were you avoiding at home? What was going on at home at the time? I personally and myself was feeling deeply unaccepted by my family and my family, again, just such wonderful people. They're so giving and my parents were doing what they were told to do by the doctors, which many people are led to believe is the way. And so for me, there was, you know, deep emotional sensitivity and emotions just weren't talked about in my, my house. We didn't talk about, you know, why I was crying or, you know, a lot of times it was like, Kelly, stop crying. And we just didn't talk about things ever really. And so for me, that was extremely painful and uncomfortable because I'm highly sensitive and I'm very emotional. And so I couldn't express this aspect of me and feel safe in Mm. this strong aspect of myself. So I was like, I'm just going to avoid that. We could almost finish here with their last sentence. It was so beautifully, you know, explained how when a child's reality is denied, then that child will try to get validation somewhere else, right? And it could be drugs, it could be sex, it could be you go forward in the future, you become a righteous person mm-hmm. because you're, you're trying to tell, convince people that I do matter because at home you don't matter, right? Your emotions don't matter. So I just want to point that out specifically to parents because our son has calmed down so much and has become so grounded and loving and calm because his reality gets validated. We make sure that when they, when there's emotions, we don't rush over them. We don't have time. Don't cry. You're a boy. Come on, suck it up. Whatever that is, right? When we sit with them and let the, let them be with their emotions, they sort of come out of it by themselves and suddenly they're laughing and they're fine. And I'm a big believer that when you deny a child's reality, in your case, it was a very layered, very sensitive reality that you're going to turn the other way. And you did, right? You pretty much, and, and, and one of the excite, exciting reasons, is that how you say it? One of the reasons why I got so excited about having you on the podcast is because you to me are sort of disproving this theory that lots of parents hear is when teachers or professionals say, if you don't medicate your child, they will Mm self-medicate. In your case, you were medicated and you self-medicated. Yeah. So I think there's no rule, you know? Um, So I want to go a little bit in that direction. What, do you remember the moment where, where you decided to come off of Adderall and try something else? And what reason did you give yourself that that's, that's okay, right? What was going on? Mm-hmm. in your mind at the time? Well, I, it was quite an interesting experience. Um, I was first, the first time I ever received any medication in my life was when I was like four years old and I started receiving antibiotics for chronic urinary tract infections. And 
Side note, that's a very clear sign that there's emotional problems going on. If your child's having issues like that, um, at that young of an age, there are emotional problems that need to be looked at within the parents and the family structure. Mm -hmm. And so that was going on for many like months. Like I would be on antibiotics for months at a time for most of my life until I was like 17. And I was medicated on Adderall at 14. And, you know, I, I'm kind of a like try everything type of person. I got to try something to actually know, like you could tell me about something, but I don't grasp it until I actually am understanding yeah, yeah. it through doing it. And so I, I went with Adderall to the extent of like, how high can I get from this? You know, you know, I'm medicated. I have this medication. I'm administering it to myself. What if I take three of these instead of just one? And so I started. Do you remember how many milligrams it was? 10 milligrams. Each. Each. Yeah. Wow. Cause I only took, uh, 10 mm-hmm. and I was like, I don't know if I want to take two Yeah. because you know, so you took then 30 at some point. At some point. Yeah. And Um, Being very transparent, there were even moments where I decided I wanted to try snorting it up my nose Mm. and seeing what that was like. It was Was absolutely similar effect. Insane. Yeah, it was like, like I would just be. I mean, I was high. I was literally high on you know a substance like meth, Mm. and that. So that started around 15 was when I started experimenting with it, and then simultaneously I was experiencing depression. So I was having these highs and I was experiencing deep depression at the same time, which had been going on since I was about 10. Um, it just wasn't the the depression was going on since 10. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Which obviously had to do with not being heard, not being accepted. And I'm sure, yeah, your brother's condition and there was just a lot going, a lot you had to handle as a 10 year old. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And so about age 15, I started being um, prescribed antidepressants as well. So I was on this cocktail of antidepressants and Adderall at 15. Wow. And, and again, meanwhile, your parents are thinking they're just helping. They're trying absolutely. to help. We need to help this girl. Right? Yeah, I absolutely. Get it. Yeah. My parents were like, did you take your medicine? You know, it helps you. And yeah. I didn't have that space with my parents to say, this is not helping me. Like, by the way, I'm super high all day. And like, like, you know, <laughs> this is not helping. There wasn't that space there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I started taking antidepressants. I think I was on a really low dose of Zoloft, like really low mm-hmm. dose. And it was about that time that I have always been more mature than my actual physical age or body is. And so I would hang out with older kids a lot. And so around age 15, I started hanging out with like the seniors in high school and like freshmen in college. Mm-hmm. And I was introduced to, you know, prescription drugs recreationally. So I was prescribed Adderall. I was prescribed a low dose of antidepressants. And simultaneously, I was starting to explore pain medicine and the high you get from pain medicine and exploring um, anti-anxiety medicine. While still taking your other two. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm exploring all of these, you know, and kind of got that um, what are those, what is it called? Like a snowball or something where you're like, go, you go like really high from, you know, someone using like methamphetamines, they get really high. And then later that day they use heroin, they go like really low and mm. just have that, um, spectrum of experience. And so I was doing that at 15 and 16. Um, and this is all with 
other friends at school that no one would ever suspect would be drug users, quote unquote. Absolutely. Yeah. And even alone, I was experimenting quite a bit alone. And that was the way that I attempted to end my life was I ate a I consumed an entire bottle of Klonopins, which is an anti-anxiety wow. medicine. That is and no joke. Yeah, I was really done with living. And so, and then you had to be, the stomach had to be pumped out. No. No. Literally nothing How happened. You, I don't know. I'm not sure. I woke up the next day like, how am I still here? Holy, because one of our um, current times, you know, most fascinating thinkers, Jordan Peterson right mm-hmm. now, he had an issue with the same med- medication. He got addicted to it and c- almost couldn't get off. And I mean, I don't think he almost died, but he was not doing well, you know? So I've heard that name before and it's like, don't fuck with that. Yeah. So you took a whole yeah. bottle of that and woke yeah. up and everything was fine. Yeah. It wow. might, it might have not been like the full prescription, but I took at least 20 pills. Still. Yeah. And I woke up, I mean, also, it might have not been the very next day that I woke up. I'm not exactly wow. sure. It was kind of a foggy time of my life. But mm. I woke up and I was like, wow, I'm still alive. And I guess I don't have to tell my parents that I just tried to kill myself because I'm still alive. So I'm just going to keep living yeah. my life. Wow. And um, I continued on and actually tried again a couple months later. Uh, same thing. Didn't work. I guess like, your angels came happening. back. Yeah, my <laughs> angels were pumping my stomach for they're me. Like, you know? <laughs> they're like, no, 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 too soon. Yeah, not yet. And how did you go from those kind of what I call prescription, normally normally used as medication, safe, right, if not overdone, to the drugs that would be called illegal? Mm-hmm. And you can share as much detail as you'd like, but walk me through the point of crossing into what's then called self-medicating, right? I mean, you were already self-medicating with those medications, mm-hmm. but there's, there comes a point when you cross into the, the darker land, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, my personal experience, the darkest self-medication that I experienced was alcohol. And Um, That started even before the Adderall. I started experiencing alcohol around age 13 and it was like, oh, my my parents were not alcoholics by any mean. They're, you know, they just enjoyed having a drink every now and then to help them relax and feel good or whatever reasons they had. And I was like, oh, well, that helps them feel better. Maybe if I just like steal a little bit of this vodka, I can feel better. Mm. So I started, you know, exploring, exploring that around age 13. And it kind of weaned off when the medication stuff started because it was, I mean, that was all consuming being on Adderall and then being on uh, antidepressant. It was all consuming for me. And around age like late 15, early 16 was when I was like, all right, I'm really going to start partying now. And so I was, you know, having the medicated by the doctors and simultaneously I was exploring alcohol. I was smoking marijuana and I was, you know, taking these different pain medicines that I would get, you know, from my drug dealer who lived down the street and just like all these things. Um, And then about age... 17 was when I was like, maybe I'll explore psychedelics and see what that's like. Um, that really opened a lot of doors for me that catalyzed a lot of transformation for me and supported me in, you know, understanding 
love a little bit more. Um, so, and those are obviously the more lighter, yeah. uh, if you want to call them drugs, that's fine. But maybe we'll just push pause on that real quick because yeah. that's a fascinating topic. And yeah. I have some experiences there as well. But so just tell me, uh, the alcohol, mm-hmm. would you, so it became like a recreational thing or would you really take it far and really have like some crazy, what we call get fucked up or get, you know, with the medication? Oh, I'd get fucked up. With the medic on the medication. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. And then, I mean, to the point where like, and I was blacked out, like I didn't, I have many memories that I don't remember, mm. you know, where, because mm-hmm. I was drunk and medicated. And were you living at home still this whole yeah. time? Mm-hmm. And so how did your parents from your awareness then, how did they, did they, what did they know? Did they suspect anything? How did they handle it? Or how did you guys collide if during moments where they maybe realized what you were doing or, or did they find out? Mm-hmm. Well, I was very clever at um, hiding things and at, you know, getting what I wanted at this age. I was like, you know, I'm going to just figure out how to get what I want because I'm not getting it naturally. My, you know, my needs were all met, but the emotional needs weren't there. So I was essentially manipulating to get what I wanted um, to help me feel safe. And so that included, you know, being able to go stay at my friend's house for three nights and they don't talk to my friend's parents, you know, they don't know where I'm at. And, and yeah, the, the times that they did find out, it was always very interesting. You know, sometimes my dad, like the first time my parents found out I smoked weed, you know, I was, I think I was 14 and I was blazing. I was so high when my parents caught me and I was just like, all right, well, this is happening now, you know, and my mom, she had a complete meltdown. She couldn't even like, she couldn't even talk because I had smoked weed. She was so upset. And my dad basically asked her to leave to like go in the room because it was just too much. Mm -hmm. And he knew I was high. So he was like having a little bit of empathy (laughs) for my experience. Yeah. Yeah. um, That first time my dad was really cool about it. Actually, he was very understanding. He was, you know, more so sharing with me like the legal implications of what could happen if I, you know, was caught or whatever. And so that was cool. It it created a a kind of a running joke with my dad about my marijuana use. Um, But in regard to the alcohol, I really only got caught like twice out of the hundreds of times that I would go out and party. Um, And those two times was like very traumatic of punishment, you know, not, not physical. I was never physically abused, but the, the emotional, um, abuse of like, how could you do this? Like shaming me Mm -hmm. and telling me I'm wrong and that, you know, that, that they're going to call the cops on me and like all this kind of stuff. And, and then punishing me and, you know, taking away my phone and not letting me talk to my friends and taking my door off. And so, you know, that was the response. Taking your door off. Yeah. They would take the door off of my room. Um, so you couldn't have your own. No privacy. privacy. Yeah. No space hmm. for myself. Um, Parents, if you're listening, don't do that. Yeah, please don't do that. Please it's don't very that. traumatic. <laughs> it's really not helpful. Don't take the door off. Just put a little window in with a little slide so you can and at least put the food in, yeah. you know, like in prison, but don't take the door off. <laughs> yeah, don't take the door off. And also, you know, just ask your kids, how are you feeling sometimes? Because really they want to share 
and there's a need for safety. And that's why I went down the path I went down because mm. I was just suppressing all of my emotions and everything I was feeling all the time, all this sensitive energy. Um, and, you know, I never really was asked like, what's really going on for you? Can we, do you want to share? Like, do you want to cry? Like what's going on for you? That was mm. never yeah. asked of me. See, okay, that's huge because if anything, you know, from our movie and from our movement, if I can leave parents, fellow parents, with anything, is that, and you agree, of course, when a child acts out, up, acts up, out, you know, mm -hmm. When a child expresses, expresses themselves. emotions, <laughs> yeah. whether it's anger, frustration, sadness, you know, we need to be there and listen. Yeah. And we need to listen that whatever is being said is real for them. Mm -hmm. And that can include fairies, angels, flying elephants, potatoes with eyes. It doesn't matter mm -hmm. because when we deny their reality, is when they start disconnecting from us. And like you said, you're, you don't feel safe. You don't feel heard. You don't feel loved. Eventually, why would you ever go talk to your parents about anything that matters? Mm -hmm. Emotionally, drug-wise, uh, sexual education. You're going to go to your friends, your peers, right? There's a beautiful book called Hold On To Your Kids. Mm. Um, Gabor Mate and Gordon Neufeld wrote this book because they realized that nowadays so many kids are disconnected from their parents and their peers become their parents, mm -hmm. but their peers are also not really raised by true parents. So we have this weird peer led, inexperienced, immature craziness happening. And that's, what's raising our kids. Right? So I just wanted to insert that very, something very important that you said is parents need, we need to listen to our children when they are sharing and they will share their emotions early on. But after a while, like you, in your example, you start shutting down and you shut them out mm -hmm. and it's too late. Yeah. And then as parents, we wonder why, how come they're not coming? Why didn't you tell me? And mm -hmm. I'm your parents. I love you. It's like, sorry, you shut down my reality way too many times and I don't feel safe. Absolutely. It's that simple. Yeah, absolutely. And to add to that, Roman, the, um, the place I'm in right now, I'm now 27 and I've been working on myself, my transformation, like my personal development for intensely for like seven years now. It's been the focus of my life. And, um, just recently I've begun to realize that because my parents shut down my reality and my teachers did, and even my peers did, I basically shut down my reality. So I felt Recently, I've been feeling how my consciousness is not actually in my body. I'm not connected to my body. I'm not aware of my body. I don't give the, the physical body what it actually needs, like exercise, the appropriate amount of water, appropriate food. And I've really been becoming aware of because my parents were not accepting of my reality, I didn't feel safe. So it felt safer for me not to be in my body, which created in a lot of ways me being more hyper stimulated me being more hyperactive because my energy was just moving yep. upward yep. towards my head and so you know a lot of energy in the head generates a lot of ideas generates a lot of imagination mm -hmm. and um i think that's a really key 
part I, of... I'm the same way. I can totally relate. Yeah. 100%. And I'm so glad that, I mean, you've been working on yourself for seven years. I've been doing the same actively since three, so 17 years myself. And there's still so much to learn mm-hmm. so far. There's still so much to, you know, waste to cover and, and distance to cover, I mean. And so perhaps talk to us about what had you shift from being sort of self-medicated, just really looking for ways to numb yourself, to not be in the reality, right? Because it was denied. Uh, trying to commit suicide. I mean, you could say, and you'll see why I'm saying it this way. I'll say this with love, but you could say most parents would be afraid that their daughter, in this case, your girl, would turn out that way, right? Because you'd be like, oh my God, if my daughter's going to be drug using, trying to commit suicide, I failed as a parent. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we do this show, because we want to share these experiences that you completely flipped. You did a 180 and you went towards the light. What happened? Mm -hmm. How did you manage to do shift? Mm. Thank you for that question. That is a beautiful question. When I was 17, I, as we know, was self-medicating and was medicated on prescriptions and I had a moment where it was just like, I was sleeping and I sat up and I was like, I'm done taking the medicine. And it was just, it was like, there was no choice. Like I had to stop taking the medicine. And I went downstairs and I told my mom, I felt safe with my mom. Um, I felt safer with my mom than with my dad. And so I, you know, told my mom, I was like, mom, I don't want to take the Adderall anymore. I don't want to take the prescription, you know, antidepressants anymore. I don't want to take the birth control anymore. I don't want to take this medicine. And also I've been taking all this other stuff off the streets as well, mom. I don't want to do it. And my mom was like, she kind of knew my mom's very intuitive woman. So she was kind of knew that all that was happening. And instead of punishing me or shaming me, she's like, okay, let's, let's get rid of it all. I was like, okay. So my mom and I just like flushed all this medication down the toilet. And I then went to stay with my grandparents for a little while. Um, That was an ADHD is over moment right there. It was big time that, yeah. Yeah, Because you said so. You're like, done. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then the, the alcohol and the like recreational, like, um, for, for a few years, I explored quite a bit of like ecstasy and Molly and sassafras. And, um, so that was still going on after I stopped being medicated by the medical system. I was still exploring different, you know, you could call them drugs and yeah, they're the, I call it medicine versus medication, right? Yes. You were, you were experimenting with medicine and it sounds like for the most people I've, I've talked to. When we're talking about psychedelics, the uh, for the most part, the reactions and experiences have always been of the light, not of the dark, unless you abuse it, which yeah. some people do. But yeah, absolutely. Truthfully, the experience with the psychedelics and the um, the ecstasy was extremely transformative for me to realize that there is love in this reality, that I could feel love, I could feel connected to my friends. And yes, we were using a substance to feel that connection, but we were still feeling connected and I felt a sense of belonging through using those uh, medicines. And I would say that simultaneously I was using alcohol as well. So I was having that deep connection and then also escaping with with the alcohol. And I, I stopped using psychedelics, um, around like 
18, so I didn't use them for long as a teenager. Um, and I was just solely drinking and I would smoke marijuana here and there. And the point with the, the drinking was on my 21st birthday, I just got hammered. Like, it, like ha- I don't know how a girl who was 115 pounds could like be that drunk and still live. Like I was so drunk and wow. I woke up the next day and I remember just laying in bed being like, what is the point? Like, why do I keep waking up? Like, what is the point? I don't want, this sucks. Like, I hate the way I feel. I'm not happy with the life I'm living. Yeah, I have, I had a boyfriend. I had all these nice things. I, you know, had, quote, done well for myself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I could have gone the path of marrying him and, you know, having this nice little white picket fence kind of life. And Mm -hmm. I just got restless. I was like, this is not, I don't like this and something needs to change. And I started having aha moments after that, like, oh, these products that I'm putting on my body, what are these ingredients in here? And I started, you know, exploring the ingredients of the body care products I had and finding out that they're linked to all kinds of of medical issues. Mm -hmm. And so I changed that. And then slowly, because I had been drinking for many years at that time, I did not have the willpower to just stop drinking. Um... I slowly moved out of drinking alcohol. I moved away from the diet that I had at that time. And I saw incrementally, you know, if I would make the choice to make a smoothie instead of go to McDonald's, I would see that I felt better. Mm -hmm. I would see that I felt, you know, we could say even more sane. I didn't feel so insane, according to other people. Mm -hmm. And... So that incrementally started around age 21 and by 23 I was off of alcohol and I was just like I have no no desire to drink it at this point but I I still felt lost and like I didn't belong and I I wasn't you know wanted by my family really mm-hmm. I didn't know what I was supposed to do with my life and do you feel that um you know cuz cuz we all sort of I call it self-medicate or manage, you know, I drink coffee. Sometimes it gives me, gives me that energy and that high, you know, it's a stimulant. Some people use like you did alcohol. Some people take, um, Adderall as adults and they feel like I only need it when I need to do taxes or bills, right? There's, there's, we know, and even psychedelics, everything is what I call a shortcut. Mm -hmm. We can achieve any of those states of being naturally. Mm -hmm. It takes work, right? Breathing, you can achieve uh, ecstasy through breathing, but it takes committed work, right? So nothing wrong with shortcuts, nothing wrong with um, Band-Aids. Like I feel a lot of medications are Band-Aids. They're not really addressing the big deep wounds, right? Mm -hmm. It's just sort of a surface scratch. So um, when you were moving towards the light, do you feel now looking back, was that a lot of um, regaining or recreating that reality that, that, you know, was yours, that was denied for so many years, like finding back into your sensitivity. Is that what was happening? I would say yes, absolutely. Yes. I had numbed myself out so much. I had no idea who I was or what actually mattered to me in life. And moving toward the light absolutely started to all those ideas of who I was or who I needed to be to be accepted and loved, 
it, it just started to fade. You know, they had to go away. And, you know, I say fade or, and it had to go away. It was actually a very, you know, it's been a journey. It's been quite treacherous of learning how to self-realize um, of what I actually need to feel that sense of belonging. And I definitely, yeah, that's that's the end of that talking stream there. So You're, you're returning to yourself, right? Absolutely. And I think that's an important thing for a parent to know is that all, all children will look to return to themselves. That's mm -hmm. our, that's not our, even our purpose. That's sort of the mechanism of life, right? You're born and then pure, and then you pack on cultural things. My mentor calls it the culture. Mm -hmm. It's a cult we get born into. And you take on all these expectations and meanings and, you know, the, the rules and so forth and what your parents tell you that their parents told them and so forth. And at some point you realize that's not really who you are and you need to go back to who am I like, mm -hmm. and I don't mean go back to being a newborn, mm -hmm. but go back to that clear, pure connection to source, right? To life. You can call it God, whatever, but you just realize, um, that that's when you really feel at home. Right. Mm -hmm. And for parents, I think it's important to know that we can't, no parent's going to be able to raise their children perfectly. That's just not going to happen. But I think what we can do is we can uh, minimize the amount of quicksand we're laying in front of them, mm -hmm. you know, by uh, listening to them and not denying their reality, by honoring their emotions, by simply talking to them about anything and really not blaming them and and reprimanding them and, you know, punishing them and yelling and the, the typical authoritarian stuff that we've done for centuries and obviously it's not working, look around the world. So um, that said, uh, what do you, um, you know, you're now what I call, you've, you've turned out, you know, you are a young woman, very passionate and happy with what you do with the energy work and you travel and you have a wonderful man by your side, someone I know and also highly respect as a human being. And so you could say you've carved out a path that gives you fulfillment or happiness. Does it not? I would say yes. Yeah. I feel, I feel like the path that I'm in and on right now is a direct reflection of, you know, my choice to change my choice to feel better, my choice to, you know, take responsibility for my own emotional experience, my own um, physical choices, the choices I've made throughout life. And through that, this journey, I'm still on the journey, through this journey, it's provided me with a sense of belonging and a sense of I'm at home within myself and I don't feel as strongly that need to be accepted by others. It's not the the forefront of every engagement that I'm having. Um, so yeah, I, I feel to share that in relation to parents who have children with ADHD or they're emotionally intense or anything that your child's experiencing, you know, through my journey, I blamed my parents for how I felt as a kid, as a teenager, as a young adult. It wasn't until about a year ago that I finally stopped blaming my dad and my mom for how I felt in my life and the path of my life. And 
once I stopped doing that, I realized that in a lot of ways I took on their emotions and I didn't know how to handle it or how to process it. So I was unconsciously blaming them for everything I was feeling because in reality, I was largely carrying emotional energy for my parents. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't that space for them to look at themselves, to observe and self-reflect, Yeah, you know, because they're from a different generation, work, house, retire, do, you know, do, 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 not self-reflect and transform and become, you know, your most beautiful expression. And so I just want to share that for any parents who are listening to this, like, please just acknowledge, you know, how am I approaching my child right now? And when I had my kid, even where was I at emotionally when I had my child? And I feel strongly that that in every single way will help the relationship with, with children and, you know, with nieces and nephews and everybody when we are aware of our emotions and and how we are connecting with the children. That's beautiful. Yeah. And Gabor Mate says that, you know, even prenatal stress is a huge factor in creating anxiety and these sort of mental disorder traits that we later label because when a child doesn't feel safe, nurtured, right, taken care of, when there's no grounding in the family, when everyone's just trying to get by or doesn't know how to handle their own emotions, like in your case, the child will absorb all those emotions. And usually we, as the children, we try to keep the peace in the family. Oh, yes. We then sort of, that's where a lot of the bipolar or schizophrenia starts to happen is because you split up into two. You're like, well, with dad, I need to be this way. With mom, I need to be this way. Because then, then they both like me and because I'm the problem is what we think as children. I'm Mm -hmm. the problem. Then if I'm fine, then there won't be a problem between the two of them. Right. It's a whole, it's it's, it's a whole mind fuck. I mean, it's it's incredibly layered and textured. And yet we think, Oh yeah, I know how to parent. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Easy, easy. You know, right. Well, everything that you just said is absolutely true. I experienced that for sure. Being someone different with dad, someone different with mom, someone different with them both together, you know, that's so true and so real. And so when that cohesion isn't there as a child, it actually, again, furthers us not being in our bodies and us being more hyperactive. Yeah. Yeah. You're just sort of all over the place. And mm-hmm. now just out of curiosity, how's your brother doing? Mm. And you feel free to share as much as you'd like, but, uh, yeah, my brother is oh, such a beautiful being and he's, he is very much under the label of having Asperger's and he's still living with my parents and, you know, he seems pretty content in his life and, um, he's younger. No, he's older than me. He's, he's uh, like a year and a half older than me. Um, I don't, I don't really engage with him very much. He's, you know, under the label of Asperger's, so he doesn't really engage very much. He's pretty disassociated from most things. Mm -hmm. Um, With that said, he seems to have a pretty rich social life. He's always like going and doing things with his friends. So, you know, that's great. (laughs) I'm really happy for that. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, A lot of Asperger kids are obviously highly intelligent, you know, genius level. Mm -hmm. And again, same there. It's like this, this fine line of how to reduce the amount of friction. I should say, you know, you can medicate and you can do all sorts of stuff and try to reduce all the friction with the world, but then it really creates someone as a problem and it labels them. But if we just sort of take out 
the some of the frictions and then give them their space to be who they are you know we're all different we're all going to live a happy life if we're allowed to unfold Mm -hmm. you know and there's always going to be friction i still have friction in life absolutely i believe it's part of being a human i mean we come here to experience if there was no friction or trauma or none of that you know i I always say your mess is your message whatever happened Mm -hmm. to you as a child in the future as an adult, you have so much experience with that. You may as well become a, uh, not a, I want to say teacher, but a guide to help others to not avoid it, but powerfully move through it. Right. Mm-hmm. That, that contrast that we need to create ourselves in relationship to it. Right. Yes. <laughs> well, anything else you'd like to add? I think you've generously, vulnerably, courageously shared a powerful story. And I'm sure there's lots of stuff that parents and children or adults with ADHD are left with. But is there anything else that you'd like to share? Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As an individual who is highly sensitive and has you know, embodied my voice and I'm able to actually speak about my experience, which many highly sensitives are not. And a lot of them, again, are being labeled as having ADHD. So their experience isn't even being considered. Um, It feels so important to just always direct awareness back to what's going on inside always in every single moment. And like you're saying, Roman, with, with your son, you have these moments of where you stop and you just gaze at each other and you connect and, you know, you ensure that there's that recognition of who he is. And maybe he's not expressing that fully yet, yet you're still creating that structure to recognize this is an individual being. He's unique. The way he expresses is unique. It may be completely different than you. And then your wife, Tatiana, and it's, it's as a highly sensitive, just being asked, like, please acknowledge that your child is a unique being mm. and that your doctor may not be acknowledging the uniqueness of your child and what your child's needs. And that's it. That's all I want to share there. That's beautiful. And that's beautiful. Well, thank you, Kelly. This has been a really authentic, um, inspiring story. And I'm committed to having all the interviews be, you know, inspiring or thought provoking, challenging. Mm -hmm. Um, this, this podcast is meant to be giving a voice to what I call the less loud, the more quiet narrative on the other side in our camp is to explore, you know, there's thousands, probably millions of stories like yours. And some got medicated, some didn't. In the end, some will end up in prison and others will end up like CEOs of big companies. I think the difference is what we as parents instill in the children, how um, you know, the more we, um, deny their reality, the stronger we deny it, the harder it's going to be for them to really carve out their own path and to stay off of medication and to really uh, not get in trouble, not get sidetracked in life. And, uh, I think it's a beautiful example, your story that your parents were good people. Your parents did not, uh, do intentionally bad things. They just listened to the quote unquote authorities, the people that should know best 
and they send you down a path that I'm sure now they might reflect back on and say, well, probably wasn't the best idea, but you know, everything turned out. So I'm glad you're here with us. I'm glad you were able to share your story and I'm excited to hear how people react. And I'm pretty sure we're going to hear some really cool feedback on the episode. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you so much, Roman, for the opportunity. And I um, just want to speak to all beings everywhere, all the parents, all the kids. If you're an adult and you've been labeled as ADHD, your path is waiting for you and you can walk your authentic truth and you're fully supported in that by your angels. Beautiful. And I say always that our children with ADHD are trying to tell us something. Absolutely. If we just listen, Mm -hmm. we will hear something beautiful. There's more information on ADHDisover.com, our website. As the film develops, there'll be more information on the film. Uh, All the podcast episodes are up there. There's a way to contact us. If you'd like to reach out and share a note with Kelly, you can do that through us. And we'll pass that along. And uh, wishing you a magical rest of the week. Thank you. Thank you.